Well, again, good morning. Isn't it nice that 2020 is almost in the rearview mirror? <laughs> I, I've never heard so much talk about just being done with a year and just being relieved that we are, we are finally going to move on. And really, I mean, who can blame someone for talking like that? I mean, let, let's just think back for a minute. Uh, 2020 was, first of all, an election year, which is enough to ruin any good year, right? And then there's corona and all of that. And Do you remember murder hornets? Remember murder hornets? That was this year too, right? And, and it, there was riots. And, and in Africa, I don't know if you knew this, we were kind of um, focused on murder hornets at the time, but Ebola came back. That was a very serious issue in Central Africa again this last year. Uh, much of Australia burned to the ground. Uh, there were all sorts of things going on. And I don't want to uh, forget to mention as well the um, squirrels in Colorado that came down with the Black Plague. Yeah, did you miss that? Yeah, squirrels with the Black Plague 2020, right? The terrifying thing, though, is that just because the calendar flips over to a new page, uh, just because we will begin to, well, we'll begin sometimes writing the correct date, sometimes we'll still write 2020, right? E even though we want to move on, it, when it becomes 2021, nothing really changes. I mean, there is no New Year's fairy who will sprinkle fairy dust on your life and somehow make everything better. It, it just, it doesn't work like that. Uh, the reality is this, is that the world that we live in will be just as crazy as it has been. It, it will continue to be just as broken as it has been. And it will continue to give us just as much trouble after January 1st as it gave us before January 1st. Now, not every year is going to be 2020. And we're thankful for that, aren't we? But every year that we live in a world that has rebelled against its creator. We will live in a world that is full of sin and pain and brokenness. And because of that, we shouldn't be surprised by murder hornets or riots or just people behaving badly in general. In fact, that's what, what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 12, he tells us, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. When, when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening. Peter says, listen, just know this is how it is. It, scripture says that this is par for the course. It doesn't say it's good. It doesn't say it's pleasant. It doesn't say that, that, that we should think it's all nice. But it does say this, we should expect it. In fact, Jesus talks about it in Mark chapter 13. And he describes it this way. He says that when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place. But it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. And then Jesus says this, these are the beginning of birth pains. These are the beginnings of birth pains. What do birth pains do? What do they do? They increase, don't they? They increase as you get closer and closer to the event which they proceed. And so Jesus says stuff like this, the mess of this world, they're like birth pains. In other words, what we should expect is that things will be on a continual trend of getting crazier as time goes on. In a sense, ever since Jesus rose victorious from the grave, this world has been close to the end, and never more so than it is today. 
In light of that fact, Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, there in verses 11 and 12, and what he writes there, it was true in his day, but it's even more true today. Paul warns the church and he says, church, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake out of your slumber. It's time to allow your heart to be stirred. And he says there, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. What Paul says, what Jesus says, is that the church needs to be awake and alert and aware of the times in which we live. You know, without regard to how close we are to the end, one of the realities that we all have to face is that we are all close to our end. You know, none of us, young or old, is promised tomorrow. And this life, this life that we live and that we treasure, it could end at any moment, couldn't it? And we have no, no promises, no guarantees. Uh, William Barclay, the, the Bible commentator, not Charles Barclay, the basketball guy, William Barclay, he said this, for every one of us, the time is near. The one thing which can be said of every one of us is that we will die. For every one of us, the Lord is at hand. We cannot tell the day and the hour when we shall go to meet him, and therefore all life is lived in the shadow of eternity. I had a friend who used to say, used to pray that we would live our lives with eternity stamped on our eyes, that we would have eternity stamped on our eyes, that, that everything we see and, and every situation that we walk into and everything that we evaluate, we would do it within the context of eternity because that changes everything when we do that. So here's what I'm saying, and here's what we're going to consider this morning. The fact is that you and I, we need to live ready. We need to live ready because our exit could come at any time. And because of that, Peter tells us there are some things that we should do. We should pray well. We should love intensely. We should welcome others genuinely. We should serve selflessly, and we should worship God unreservedly. Because this thing that Scripture talks about as being the end is coming, because we look around and we see that, that, that things are coming close to this precipitous edge, there's a response that we should have, and this is what our response should be. Praying well, loving intensely, welcoming others genuinely, serving selflessly, worshiping God unreservedly. Well, let's take a look at our, our text for this morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, really, uh, we were supposed to be in Luke, right? And, and this last week, I read this section of 1 Peter 4. I just thought, man, we have got to take a look at this together. So open your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter towards the end of the New Testament. And we're going to read just verses 7 through 11. Will you do this? When you find it, will you stand? You can follow along. I'll read our text. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, 
we ask that this morning you would take your word and you'd use it to change us. God, I pray that not only would our minds be informed, our hearts inspired, but Lord, by the work of your Holy Spirit, our lives, our living would be changed. Challenge us this morning, Lord, but beyond that, change us. We look to you and to the power of your Holy Spirit to accomplish that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. This letter of First Peter, Peter is writing to a church that because of persecution has dispersed. They've, they've gone into hiding all around the world. And so there are these followers of Jesus in these various regions, and they're all living amidst hostile pagan cultures. They're all having to swim against the current, if you will. They're all having to try to live their lives in the midst of a culture whose perspectives and practices run contrary to what scripture calls us to. They're people who are experiencing not just opposition, but outright persecution as they seek to live out their lives faithfully honoring the Lord. And so Peter calls these followers of Christ, to live lives that are holy, to do what's right, even, even if it means that they will suffer for it. And he reminds them that Christ, who suffered to purchase their salvation, that he is their example and that they should, they should seek to do what he did. And, and even if that means that they will suffer, that they should embrace that suffering. And, and what's important is not whether or not they suffer, but that they suffer well when they suffer. Peter says, and Paul agrees, they will suffer. When Paul writes to his disciple Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, he says this, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But he says, it won't last forever. And that's really what Peter is saying here at the beginning of the passage where we pick up. Uh, there in verse 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand. And what Peter is saying is, listen, it's a mess out there, but it's not going to be for always. It's not going to be forever. And what Peter is saying is keep going. The end is near. Don't give up. It reminds me of many years ago when I coached track and cross country, and especially with cross country, I would position myself at the end of the race um, just beyond the point where the runners could see the finish line. Because you see, once they could see the finish line, they would run hard. But before they could see it, I would want them to start running harder then. And so I would position myself just back a ways. Uh, and so just before they would be able to see that finish line, and I would stand there and I would yell like a crazy person. And I'd be cheering them on and tell them, you got this. Go now. You can do this. And just charging and challenging and encouraging them to run hard. I wanted to remind them that the race was almost over. They could be tired after the race. They could breathe after they crossed the finish line. But now, now was the time for them to run. And that's what Peter's doing for us. That's what Peter's doing for us. He's standing there and he's saying, listen, whether you see it or not, the end is at hand. The end is coming, so run hard. Or as Peter puts it, live right. He's saying this, it is so important that we remember that eternity is just around the corner. It's so important that we remember that eternity is just around the corner. Again, William Barclay puts it so well. He says this, the great characteristic of sanity is that it sees things in their proper proportions. It sees what things are important and what things are not. It is only when we see the affairs of earth in the light of eternity that we will see them in their proper proportions. It is when God has given his proper place that everything takes its proper place. 
And so Peter says we need to live in light of the fact that we are one heartbeat away from eternity. We need to live knowing that how we live matters. So I think the question is this, the thing that that we as followers of Christ need to ask ourselves, and I, I think we need to ask ourselves often, is this, what does the way I live say about what I really believe is coming? What does the way I live say about what I really believe? You know, I think if we were asked to do so, we could all write down on paper maybe a fairly sound statement of belief, right? We could summarize what it is we believe about God and about Jesus, about ourselves, about salvation. But do you ever stop to wonder, what does the way that you live teach about what you believe about God and Jesus and yourself and salvation and what is coming in this world? Because that's what really counts. That's what, that's what the world around us sees. You know, so often when we, when we make our, our great definitive statement of faith, and not always, I'm not saying that we shouldn't share what it is that we believe, but a lot of times when we do, what people hear is what the teacher sounds like on those old Peanuts cartoons, right? I know that half the time you're sitting here and I'm up here and what you're hearing is right now God's word tells us the faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God and so we need to proclaim what God's word says we need to look at what it says and our brains do work some of the time don't they good good just checking But when our words are different than how we are living, that's a problem. It's a problem. So we have to live reflecting what it is that we believe about what it is that's coming. Everything I read in Scripture says this, that we are a heartbeat from the end that it could come at any time. And that this world is disposable. That five minutes after eternity, there are a lot of things that won't matter anymore, right? How well my lawn is manicured, 32 seconds into eternity, no one will care. Very few people care now. (laughs) I care way too much. But that moment we cross over into eternity, so much of this life is just a paper plate. It's useful. It's good. If you're at a potluck and you don't have a paper plate, that's sad, (laughs) right? But you're not going to treasure that paper plate. You're not going to take it home with you afterwards. When you've eaten far too much, you, you just drop that thing in the trash and move on, right? You don't even think about it. And so much in this world, it's temporary. We've got to remember that tomorrow isn't guaranteed for any of us, that this world will end one day. And it will come without warning, as Jesus says, as a thief in the night. And so Peter says, we should pray well. We should love intensely, welcome others genuinely, serve selflessly, and worship God unreservedly. Let's look at each of these in turn, beginning partway through verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What Peter's saying here is that we need minds that think straight. We need hearts that pray straight. Uh, We need to have our eyes on the finish, or at least remembering there is a finish and running hard for it. And that should focus our attention. That should, it should settle us down. It should wake us up. It should cause us to give ourselves to prayer with the seriousness 
then now this doesn't mean that the Christians should be gloomy, doomy, and somber, okay? And just kind of a holy bummer to everyone that you're around. That isn't what it's saying. But what it does mean is that our approach to life, our attitude in life should be thoughtful and it should be earnest. We're going to see that word earnest several times in our passage. And I, I like that word. If something is earnest, it's purposed and it's serious. Basically, what you're saying is, no, I mean this. No, no, I'm serious about this. I'm intentional, and I am going to follow this through. We need to keep in mind that the true importance in this life is the impact that can be made on eternity. All that we ever do and say, every opportunity that we, that we are given, it finds its highest and most important value in the impact that it makes upon eternity. And because of that, because of that, we must battle our flesh. We have to battle our flesh in order to seek to make our life count because our flesh is always trying to misdirect us. It's always trying to steer us off course. Uh, the flesh always wants to set our trajectory and we can't let it. If you look just a little bit earlier in the passage we're looking at there in 1 Peter 4, if you look at verse 3, it tells us the direction the flesh often is, tries to set us in. It tries to get us to carry on in unrestrained behavior. That's a good summary right there, to carry on in unrestrained behavior. I just want to do what I want to do. Just leave me alone. I just want to do what I feel like doing, what I want to do but rather instead, we're to be earnest. We're to choose to be serious and to be intentional about pursuing these things. And if we are not earnest in regard to prayer, our flesh will always keep us from it. Because prayer is hard work, right? I don't mean that kind of prayer that, oh God, help me in that moment, right? That, that just, that moment where you cry out to God, that's easy, right? That, that hopefully it becomes a, just a natural cry of the heart that you're crying out to the one who you know can help you. What I'm talking about is those times of intentional prayer when we are seeking to know the shepherd's voice and we are seeking to draw close to God and we are going to spend time with the Lord. Our flesh fights that. How often does the alarm go off and we just hit the snooze button? That, that snooze button, I, I'm, I'm convinced it's, it's full of demons. It, it's, you know, it, it's satanically inspired tool of the devil, right? Because think about this. How often has that snooze button caused you to walk in the spirit? And how often has that snooze button kept you from time with the Lord? Man, we got, we got to be decided and serious. We have to be earnest about this. We have to fight our flesh and embrace this time and, and, and draw close to the Lord and seek his face. You know, what does it look like when, when you come to prayer? I, I love the picture that we're provided of prayer by King Hezekiah. In, in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37, we see this remarkable scene where King Hezekiah, he's the king of the kingdom of Judah, and they have um, been surrounded by the Assyrians. They have laid siege to the, the city of Jerusalem, and, and it's not looking good. It's, it's looking like they're going to get wiped out. And um, the Assyrian army is big, bad, and they got some attitude. And so the commander of the Assyrian army, I don't know why he does this other than the man has some serious attitude. He writes a letter to King Hezekiah. Instead of just attacking and wiping him out, he writes a letter to tell him everything he's about to do to them, right? 
He is just getting in their face and he is just letting them know, listen, our gods are bigger than your God. Our army is bigger than your army and we are going to wipe you out. And so he writes this letter and he sends it to King Hezekiah. And I love what King Hezekiah does. He takes the letter, he reads it and he goes, oh, that's not for me. It's like the UPS guy dropped something off my house last week that wasn't for us. It was the wrong address. So I chased him down the street, right? And then afterwards I thought, what if that guy got his wife something better than I got my wife? I should have checked for, no, that'd been wrong. Okay, no, I shouldn't have done that. So, so Hezekiah takes this and goes, oh, well, clearly this isn't for me. And so he folds it up, puts it in his shirt and walks over to the tent pole, unfolds the letter and lays it out. Says, God, you got mail. Do you see the trash this guy's talking about you? Wow, that's it. You see what this guy's saying he's gonna do to your people? And God, obviously I can't do anything about this. So this must be written to you. And Hezekiah leaves it with the Lord. And man, does the Lord come through. Man, does the Lord come through. Wipes out the Assyrians. And not by Hezekiah's might, but God intervenes. What a beautiful picture of prayer for us, huh? When there's situations that are just completely beyond us, out of our scope, we can't touch it. Just to take it to the Lord, leave it there with him. Philippians 4, 6 tells us not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication or asking, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Paul tells the Philippians, don't be anxious about anything. You had any anxiety this year, this last year? You know, you're standing in line and someone coughs next to you. <laughs> I wasn't worried about Corona till now because I felt that. I mean, someone hand me a bleach wipe. <laughs> yeah. You feel any anxiety? Well, Paul tells the Philippians, is, don't be anxious. Just pray. Pray about everything. Take it all to him. Prayer should be our first response to everything. My first response to everything tends to be flapping my gums, right? Oh, how better the world would be if I would pray first. There'd be a lot, a lot of things I would then decide, yeah, I probably shouldn't say that. Yeah, I should probably keep my mouth shut. Our first response should always be prayer. Be that guy, be that girl, be that man, that woman, who in whatever situation, whatever context you are in, when the stuff hits a fan, be the one to say, let's pray. Let's ask God what to do. Let's pray, let's ask God to intervene in this. You know, wow, this conflict is getting hot. Let's, let's pray, honey. You know, we're stymied with how to solve this problem. Why don't we stop and pray? Be the one to lead others to prayer. It should always be our first move. And don't forget what we learned just a few weeks ago in Luke 11. Remember Jesus had been praying and his disciples asked him, teach us to pray. And Jesus starts off with this. He says this, call God Father, pray Father. Remember, for those who are in Christ, for those who belong to Christ, uh, we are washed in the blood that was shed upon the cross. Our sin is cleansed. As scripture puts it this way, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's like there's this blanket of righteousness that the Lord just puts over us, just mounds it over us, and we're just completely covered, completely concealed in it. We are covered in the righteousness of Christ, and so we can go to God, not fearful, not feeling like we can't ask, but we can go boldly before the throne of grace. We can call him Father. So because the end is near, Peter says, we are to pray well. But then he also says we are to love intensely. Look at verse eight. 
Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. There's that word again. Determined, serious, since love covers a multitude of sins. It, people often say, I love you too quickly, too glibly. You know, they're talking about a mud puddle of love. When scripture talks about love, it's talking about the ocean, okay? It, the, the Bible's idea of what love is is far, far greater than what our culture's idea of love is. Uh, love is not just a passing emotion, uh, but the love that scripture describes, it is durable, it is strong, it is real, it is earnest, it is sincere, it's intense in its conviction. And so it isn't easily worn out. It's not easily worn out because real love forgives. Peter tells us that it forgives a multitude of sins. Proverbs chapter 10 says this, that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Hatred stirs up strife. It stirs the pot. It gives a poke and a jab. But love, love covers over. And understand this, the context here isn't romantic love. It's not talking about you and your spouse. It's not even talking about you and your kids. But when it says that we are to love intensely, it's talking about us as the body of Christ. Now, you want to feel a little awkward and uncomfortable? Just make eye contact with someone across the room. Just say, I love you intensely. <laughs> we are finding a new church right away. Like even now. Let's go, honey. Are you kidding me? And yet this is what Scripture says is that we are to love each other intensely, that the connection amongst the body is to be such that it is described by this world as being, well, that's a bit intense, right? But what did Jesus say? They'll know that you are my guys. They'll know that you belong to me. How? Because you don't cuss. You didn't watch that movie. Okay, you shouldn't cuss and you should not see that movie. But that isn't how they'll know us. They will look at the body of Christ and they will see a love that is real, a love that actually connects with others and serves others and ministers to them. A love that is earnest. It's on purpose. It's intense. It's focused. I'm going to do this. I'm serious about this. So Peter calls us to pray well, to love intensely, and then to welcome others genuinely. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, now, Peter is not talking about the kind of hospitality here that is, you know, like being an entertainer or entertaining people in your home. It's not talking about place settings and good hors d'oeuvres. What it's talking about is opening your life to those who need you. It's meeting needs, relational or material. He's talking about the body of Christ being the body of Christ, us caring for each other. It has way more to do with sharing yourself with other believers than it has to do with any kind of entertainment. Listen to how Hebrews 13, 1 through 3 addresses it. He says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The writer of Hebrews points out that as followers of Christ, our circles are not to be closed. But we are to reach out and to pull others in. 
strangers that we're to include others in. We're never, to, we're never to form those groups that have their backs to everyone else, but rather we have got to consciously seek to pull others in. Notice, too, that Peter says we're to do it without grumbling. You know what that cues me, clues me into? It's not always going to be fun. Sometimes the reason that you don't include me in your circle is you find me obnoxious. And guess what? When you let me in your circle, I'm going to be obnoxious and close. <laughs> and so what, what Peter says here is lump it. Deal with it. It's not about you. It's... It's about obeying the Lord and loving each other genuinely. So we are to pray well, love intensely, welcome each other genuinely, and Peter says we are to serve selflessly. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So here Peter, he urges us to remember that God has given each of us a gift or gifts uh, that are to be used to serve the body, that that's to be our focus, that God is the one who equips us to do the task that he's called us to do of serving the body. We're to build others up in their walk with Christ. Now, generally here, Peter is speaking of the gifts of the Spirit, uh, the gifts of God's grace. Paul uh, more specifically addresses those in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, but here, Peter divides the gifts up really into two categories, the, uh, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. Uh, but what he really focuses on is not what are the gifts, but what are the gifts for? And very clearly, the gifts are not for us, ourselves. They're not for the individual, but they're for the body. That the gifts are to be used to serve others. And so we are to serve others in God's strength and for God's purpose and to God's glory. And we're to see all that God has given us as being something that we have been given stewardship over. We're, we're to be stewards. That means we're not owners. That It doesn't belong to me, and it is not to be used for my purposes, but rather this is something that God has given me to do the job that God has assigned for me to do. And so I'm to take all that God has given me in this life, and I'm to use it, I'm to expend it toward his purposes. Jesus talks about this in, in Luke chapter 12. He, he's talking to his disciples, and Luke writes, he says, The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them the portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. That, that's just the first half of what Jesus says there. Jesus then addresses those who decide that they don't want to be the good and faithful steward. They want to, to serve themselves. Um, you, you can take a look at that passage if, if you're of, of that ilk. But, but here what it's talking about is this, is all that God has given us, he's given it to us to build his kingdom. And the, what Peter is saying here is, is church, it's time. We don't have time to lose. We don't have time to waste. The end is at hand, Peter says. It's time for all of us to put our hand to the plow, to, to join together and to do things that will matter for eternity. We all have a role to play. Each of us has, has gifts and resources that uh, we get to contribute, and, and God has equipped, and he will empower each of us to, to play the role that he would have us play in the building of his kingdom. 
You know, there are unsaved people all throughout this community. I don't know if you realize that. Um, yeah, everyone's not saved. There are people that we need to share the gospel with. We need to love them and, and, and draw them in and, and minister to them. There are saved people who need to be encouraged. They need to be challenged. They need to be prayed for. There's children that need to be taught. There's, there's people whose needs need to be met by the body. We have a building to put up, and we have a world to share the gospel with, don't we? And what Peter is saying is, listen, the end is at hand. It's time to run. No, no more time for lollygagging. It's time to go. It's time to move forward. Finally, Peter says that we are also to worship God unreservedly. Partway through verse 11, he says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We are to seek God's glory in all that we do, that God would be glorified in Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. When we declare God's glory, it's like you're giving something back to God that was his in the first place. It is his glory. We don't make God more glorious. We just recognize it, proclaim it, and announce it. It's like all glory belongs to him. It's like when there's something in the lost and found. It doesn't automatically become mine, right? It's like, oh, someone left this, so I get it now. No, 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 no. It belongs to them, and then I return it to the one who who it belongs to. And when we sing praise to God, when we glorify God, we are basically ascribing or declaring the glory that was already his. He is the only one deserving of glory. He is the only one deserving our worship and our praise. Not only in the songs that we sing, but in the living of our lives. We're to seek to have our lives be an act of worship of the Savior. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You know, we, we live our lives to glorify God. But when we worship, when we come here together to worship together, that's to glorify God as well. Our worship isn't about us or our enjoyment of it. I, I, um, I know a pastor who one time he was standing at the back um, saying goodbye to people after a Sunday morning. A lady came up to him and said, Pastor, I did not like the third worship song. <laughs> Fair enough. He said to her, that's okay. It wasn't for you. I would love to have a quick wit like that. It would probably get me in way more trouble than I can handle. But, but do we realize that? Aren't there songs that you hate? Worship songs. I mean, they, we begin to sing them and you think, oh, oh well, it's not for you. It's not for you, it's for him. Do I get to pick what flavor birthday cake you get? I don't think so, because it's not for me. It's for you. And so when we come to worship, I think one of the things we've, we've got to remember, this, it's great when you enjoy worship. Isn't that wonderful? And I think we do enjoy it because it's what we were made for. When we get it right, when we realize it's about him and not about us, that's when we really begin to enter into it. That's when we begin to really benefit from it and, and enjoy it because it's not about me. It's about him. But man, when we recognize that and, and we recognize that it isn't whether that, that song's just our thing that we like or not, but it's declaring truth about God. It's, it's saying that he is glorious and he is good even if the lyrics are a little hokey and the tune is too repetitive, whatever. 
But if it's declaring God's glory, that's what we want. That, that's what we want to give ourselves to. And really, what, what it comes down to for us is, well, the psalmist describes it. He says in Psalm 95, 6, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For us, our part in worship is to, to kneel our hearts, to, to bow our hearts and our will before the Lord. It's an act of surrender. It's a declaration of our submission to God a declaration of his goodness, his righteousness, his love, his glory. And so we praise him. We announce his goodness to all the world. We remind ourselves and we remind each other of all that he's done for us. You know, here's, here's what I pray for our worship times each week when we gather. I, I pray that our worship time would be upward, that it would cause our eyes to, to turn to the Lord, that it would be upward focused, that, that as we enter into worship, our eyes would not be on ourselves or on the team, but our eyes would be on the Lord. It would be upward, that it would be unashamed, that it would be unashamed, that we would come to that place I just love the Lord so much. I don't care what you think. I don't, I don't care how I sound. I love the Lord. That I am, just, I, I am just focused on the fact that I love him. That it would be responsive. Because we never initiate with God. God always initiates with us and we respond to him. And so that we would be responding to the Lord, to what it is that he's done. And, and to who it is that he is, that we would worship him because he is God. Fourthly, that it would be impassioned. You know, it, it, is, it is vital that our worship engage our minds, that it be theologically sound in what it says. But you know what? It shouldn't leave our hearts cold either. I'm not saying that we need to engage in some sort of emotionalistic hype that, that isn't the thing. But our hearts are part of us. Our emotions are part of us. And, and our emotions should be involved in worship. If we can just sit cold and dispassionate through worship, we have not entered in. Not all. Not all. It, it's, it, it's just as off base as is the person who is an emotional, I don't know what, you know, whirling dervish, but their brain is totally checked out. They are just completely emotional and, and, and they haven't clicked their brain on at all. They are just responding emotionally. It, what is the difference between that and someone who is just, their brain is on, but they've shut all emotion off? And so our worship should be impassioned as well. It should be passionate and it should be immersive. It, it, it should get to a place to where we are so focused on the Lord, so in love with the Lord, that that is our singular focus, that it just narrows our field of vision down to just seeing Jesus. We don't have time to waste. I remember running a race a long time ago and um, I, it was actually the very first time I ever ran an organized race. And um, I didn't even know if I was going to finish it. Um, but I got down to the last section of the race, and um, I could see the finish line. And I could see a couple people running ahead of me. And I mean, I was hurting. I was in a lot of pain at that point. And um, I knew I didn't have much left, but I was looking at these guys, and they looked worse than I did. I thought, you yeah, look any worse, you'll be a corpse. And, and so I was thinking, I could catch them. I could do this. But you know what? I'm hurting, and I just coasted in. And I took 10th place, and I could have had 7th, and I would have won my division. And, and, and ever since then, I've never coasted a race whether I was last or I was first, well, I've never been first. So it, it, last or fourth to last didn't matter. 
no matter where I was, when I could see the finish line, I would run so as not to leave anything in the tank. And we, we can't see the finish line from here. We don't know when it'll be. It, it could be before we get out of here. It could be next week. It could be, it could be another thousand years. We don't know. It looks like it's soon. But we do know this. Scripture says we're to live like it's just around the corner. We don't have time to waste. We don't want to give our lives to paper plates, to things that are disposable. But we want to live for eternity. And so let's pray that the Lord would stamp eternity on our eyes, that everything we see and every situation that we evaluate, we would do it in the light and in the perspective of eternity. Notice that, that everything Peter says here, he's saying, man, the end is near, therefore, because the end is near, spend yourself, give yourself, engage he doesn't say pull back. He doesn't fall into a defensive mindset, but rather he, he says, man, let's go after this. Let's, let's worship God. Let's serve each other. Let's engage in the kingdom. And let's do the thing that we're called to do. Peter says we need to live ready because our exit could come at any time. And so we should pray well. We should love intensely. We should welcome others genuinely. We should serve selflessly. We should worship God unreservedly. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take these things and you'd speak them to our heart. God, I pray that we would not only engage in this with our hearts and with our emotions, but Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would change us, that we would be able to live different, that we would be able to live in such a way, Lord, that the world would see that we belong to you and that we would spend ourselves well, that we would run well, so that when that day comes, be it near or be it far, when we stand before you, we would hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Work that in us, Lord. Challenge us. Empower us. Work in us. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.